Now, as Dawson just read to you, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 16, I would remind you that the reason why I took these Scriptures and um, used them for Advent is because many believe that this was a hymn that the early church sang. It was a, um, a confession of the truth that the church upholds. So, like for instance, look with me again what Dawson just read. Um, in verse 14 of chapter 3, he says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. So in other words, there is a, a particular way that what we believe should lead us to live by. Someone who says that they are a believer of the gospel that we believe in, and yet there is no change in their life, there is no transformation that takes place, the truth of the matter is there is no way they can truly believe the gospel that we believe without there being transformation, without there being change. And so he said here that I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay in my coming to you, I want you to know how a, a Christian that believes these truths should live their life. And then he says, which is the church of the living God, talking about the household of God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. So there we see that the church or this group of believers that we have here this morning, they have a responsibility to uphold. What does it mean to be a pillar and a buttress of something? It means you are the supporting members. You are the supporting foundation that holds up the truth in what we believe. And then he says in verse 16, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. So now he's going to give you a, a, um, a highlighted hymn, if you will, of the, the truth that we uphold, the truth that, that we stand behind and we live by. And as you understand these truths and you believe these truths, it changes the way a person behaves. And that's exactly what he's trying to get across to us here. And so with this hymn that we're fixing to read here in just a second, it highlights the truth. It just picks out the high points of our faith so that there is a summary statement, if you will, of this great, great mystery of godliness that has transformed the lives of people like you and I. And so he says here, the first part of this is that he was manifested in the flesh. In other words, we are amazed and in awe of the truth that God Himself became one of us. God took on humanity. Now again, I'm not going to sit here and try to tell you that I understand everything of what that means because I can't, I can't even understand the truth of the matter is the fullness of who God is. So I'm not going to sit here and try to tell you that I can explain exactly what this means, but I can at least understand enough of it to tell you that the Bible teaches us that the Creator of all things, that He 
put on and added to Himself a human nature. He literally took on a body like you and I. He joined in the, in the person of Jesus Christ, God Almighty and humanity, and He joined them together forever. And I look at that sometimes and I, and I stand and I think, God, I can't fathom it. I can't comprehend it. I can't take this in. This is, this is, it's kind of like Solomon back in the Chronicles. I don't remember exactly where it was, but whenever he was building the temple for the Lord. And I remember when he got done with the temple, he looked at it and he said, Behold, the heavens of the heavens can't contain you. How much less this building that I have made. And I can't help but have those same kind of feelings and emotions when I think about the Creator of all things being confined, if you will, in a sense, in human flesh. And He did this so that the Creator of all things could pay the price for sin that I owe. He didn't owe it. I owe it. And so that He could rise from the dead and give me eternal life with Him. And as I said before, so be connected to us in our humanity in a way that, again, you and I can't fathom and understand completely. But God was manifested in the flesh. He was revealed to us in the flesh. And then this week, we're going to pick up the next truth that we stand in awe of and we celebrate during Christmas, and that is that during this time, He was also vindicated by the Spirit. Now, vindicated, or some versions that you have may read justified, it means to, to prove to be right. It, it is, um, you know, like for us, when we look at justification in our faith, we know that you and I are guilty, right? We're guilty. And yet, through what He has done for us, God declares us as justified, not guilty. Jesus, in this vindication, is different than our justification. Because Jesus is literally not guilty of anything. And yet, while He was here, He was accused of being a liar. He was accused of having a demon. He was accused of operating under the power of Satan. He was accused of so many different things, and yet God vindicated him. God declared him as completely innocent and right and justified in everything that he claimed to be able to be. Now, to get just a little bit of a sense of what I'm talking about whenever I, I talk about these things, I studied a little bit on people that were vindicated. Would you sit there right there for me? For instance, there was a man that um, in the 60s, and I don't remember his name. I should have wrote it down, but I didn't write it down. Him and his wife left for the orange groves to go and work for their family. They had seven children. While they were at the orange groves, this man got, um, I guess he got a phone call. I'm not sure what happened in the 60s. I don't know, those of you that were in the 60s, did you have phones back in? I can't remember. <laughs> anyway, he got some kind of a bird or something. Something came by. 
And, um, and it told him that there were three of his kids that were taken to the hospital. And by the time he got home, the other four children also had been taken to the hospital. And all seven of his kids died. Now, those of you that have ever lost a child, I can't imagine losing a child. And yet, this man and his wife lose seven children on the same day. To make matters worse, they arrested him and put him in prison under a life sentence for the murder of his seven children. Now, I don't know what happened between him and his wife. I don't know if his wife stood by him. I don't know if she believed it. I don't know what happened. But I know that many years later, many years later, while he was still on death row, the witness that stood against him, come to find out, they had bribed him and said, if you testify against this man, then we will reduce your sentence on a crime that he had committed. Then come to find out that in those many years, the babysitter had confessed three times to actually poisoning the children. Now that's a terrible story. But can you imagine what it felt like when they came to him and they said, we know that you were right all along. And we know you never touched your children. We know you never did anything wrong. We know that you are right. That, my friends, is the sense of vindication that I'm talking about. Another man, he, um, he served uh, time in jail under, uh, I think it was a life sentence, for the rape of, um, of two young girls in a park. 58 years later, DNA evidence proved him to be completely innocent. 58 years later of the rape and murder of two young ladies. Now, can you imagine the vindication that he felt whenever his name was cleared, whenever it proved that he was exactly... I'm going to trip over this thing. <clears throat> Let me see if I can just get it on out of my way. How about that? All right. And so again, the point that I'm getting at here is that the Bible tells us that Jesus was vindicated by the Spirit. So we're going to stand in amazement as this Son of God, God in the flesh, the Creator of all things, He suffered a humiliation, a rejection. He suffered utter shame and it was all due to false accusations. He was arrested. He was beaten. And it was all during a mock trial. He was stripped of all of His clothes, a cross put on His back. He was yelled at, spit upon, laughed at. And this is the all-powerful, all-knowing God of all creation. And all of these accusations, after being tried and convicted of all manner of falsehood, and yet... He was completely innocent of it all the entire time. But here's the thing. He knew. He knew that His vindication was coming. He knew that what He was being punished for was for our peace. He knew that 
It was for our transgressions. He knew that as Isaiah 53, 5 says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds, we are healed. But the beautiful thing about this is that He has to endure suffering and punishment that you and I, each one of us, should have had to have endured for an entire eternity. And He did it for you and me because He knew vindication was coming. Accusation. Accusation is one of the enemy's favorite schemes, right? The Bible tells us that the great accuser at the end of the day is going to be cast down no longer able to bring accusations against us before God. And so sometimes the accusations He brings against us are absolutely true. But every accusation He brought against Jesus, none of them were ever true. Here's the thing that I want you to be able to see this morning. Through Jesus' vindication, we get our vindication. Through Jesus' vindication, we get our justification. The Apostle Paul is actually going to tell us that because he was vindicated and declared to be everything that he said he was, because he was proven to be absolutely true, the Apostle Paul says to us, what charge is there that can ever be brought against God's elect? It is God who justifies. And if God is the one who justifies, who shall ever bring a single charge against God's elect? And so as we study His vindication this morning, I want you to stand in awe of the fact that He went through all of that and had to be vindicated for you and for me. And if He hadn't done that, then every charge brought against us would stand and we would pay for it ourselves. So, how was Jesus vindicated by the Spirit? I'm going to share at least two ways that I believe He was vindicated by the Spirit. The first way comes from Romans chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. So if you'll turn over there with me. Romans chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, and look what this says. Concerning His Son, who was descended from David, according to the flesh. So the first thing is that Jesus was the Son of God, but in the flesh, He was associated and descended from David. That's who He was. His mother, her lineage was known to be from David. Even Joseph and his lineage, we can go back and read, I think it's in Luke or Matthew 1, to where... His lineage was actually from the seed of David. But then in verse 4, look what it says next. And He was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness. How was He declared to be the Son of God in power? By His resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord. And so here it tells us that Jesus was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. And basically what you have here is you have the, um, the, the triune God, if you will, working together in our redemptive salvation. 
And so the Spirit of God here, He says that He raised Jesus from the dead, He gives Jesus new life, but ultimately in this resurrection, what He actually does is He declares that this man is everything and everyone that He said He was. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then He was not who He claimed to be but He was declared to be the Son of God in power by the Spirit raising Jesus from the dead. Look at some of the, um, the accusations that came against Him from the claims that He made. In Luke chapter 7, verse 48 and 49. Look at those Scriptures with me. You saw some of this last week. But it says, And He said to her, your sins are forgiven. Now go to verse 49. Then those who were at the table with Him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Now again, you saw that last week. But here is a claim that Jesus is making. Jesus is saying, I have the authority to forgive your sins. Now that's pretty important, right? Because our biggest problem is not who is in the office and who gets elected at this next presidential election. That's not your biggest problem. Your biggest problem is that you are a sinner against Almighty God. And if your sins are not paid for, you're in trouble. And so we need Jesus to be exactly who He says He is. That He has the authority to forgive my sins. How am I going to know whether Jesus is truly the Son of God in power who has the authority to forgive my sins? He rises from the dead. We'll get into that a little bit more here in a few minutes. Look with me at John chapter 14, verse 6 and see what else Jesus claimed. John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and no one comes to the Father except through Me. You need a relationship with God so that He makes you one of His children and becomes your Father. That's what you need. Why do we say it this way? Because what does a father do? Well, a father is supposed to protect. A father is supposed to provide. A father is supposed to love and discipline and help mold and make and grow. And you need that kind of relationship. But the problem is, none of us are able to have it except Jesus here says, I'm the one who can give that to you. There's no other way. So Jesus is making some very lofty claims here. And every time Jesus makes these claims, the people at the table say, what do you think He is? And this is not the way the disciples would say to Him. Remember whenever Jesus calmed the winds and the waves and the disciples said, who is this that even the winds and the waves obey Him? No, they were saying that in a way of worship and awe, that this is somebody different. But when Jesus makes these claims, the world and the Pharisees look at Him and they say, who do you think you are? And this is exactly who He was. But can you imagine 
the world looking at the Almighty God in the flesh and saying, you're nobody. You're nothing. Vindication is exactly what He is waiting for. And so, Jesus claims to have the authority to forgive sins. Jesus claims to be the only way to get to the Father. In John chapter 10, verse 18, look at another claim that Jesus claims. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge... I have received from my Father. So there again, a very bold claim. A bold claim that says, I have the authority to raise the dead. Even my own life when I die, I have the authority to raise the dead. Look at what else He has the authority to do, or what else He claimed. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 63 through 66, look at what He says here. But Jesus remained silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. In other words, you claim this, tell us openly, who are you? And Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, Jesus is going to quote a psalm to him, Psalm 110, a messianic psalm, a psalm that showed that the Son of God is going to be at the right hand of power. He says, but I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. You want to know how I know that He claimed He was the Son of God here? Then the high priest did what? Tore his robes. Go back to that next verse. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do you need? You have now heard His blasphemy. So there again, Jesus claims to have the authority to forgive sins. Jesus claims to be the way to get to the Father, the only way that no one comes to the Father but by Him. Jesus claims to be able to raise Himself from the dead and to give life. He claims to be the Christ, the Son of God. And they accuse Him of blasphemy, of being a liar, of who does this man think he is? He has a demon, is what many of them said. Look with me at John chapter 5, verse 18. John chapter 5, verse 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was He breaking the Sabbath, but He was even calling God His own Father, making Himself what? So now Jesus not only claims to be able to raise life, to forgive sins, to make someone right with the Father. In other words, He has the right to make you a child of God. These are bold claims. And now He makes the claim that I am equal with God. And then they decide they want to kill Him. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Him. They're going to punish Him because they claim He's a liar. And He needs to be vindicated. 
Jesus claimed to be equal with God in John chapter 8, verse 51 through 59. I'm not going to read all of it to you, but he told them, he said, listen guys, <clears throat> I've known Abraham a long time and Abraham looked forward to seeing my day. And then the Jews looked at him and he said, you ain't even 50 years old and yet you say you've seen Abraham? And Jesus looked back at him and he said, before Abraham was, I am. Yahweh, the name of God. In other words, I am God. And they knew that's what He was saying because again, they wanted to kill Him. They wanted to kill Him when He said these things. And then finally in John chapter 10, verse 28 through 33, I'll stop with this one, but there were many claims that Jesus made, but these are the most important claims that Jesus needs vindication for. Because listen to me, either Jesus is everything He said He was or Jesus is a liar. Either Jesus fulfills and checks all of these boxes and He proves that this is who He is, or your hope is in vain. You need to go find you another Savior to follow. And so in 10.28, the Gospel of John, He says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of My hand. Did you catch that? I give them eternal life. In other words, Jesus says, I have the authority to forgive your sins, which we need very seriously. I have the authority to get you to the Father, to make you a child of God. I have the authority to raise the dead to life. I have the authority to be equal with God. I am God. And I have the authority to give eternal life to anyone that I choose and no one will ever be able to snatch them out of my hand. Those are some bold claims. Bold claims. And in the resurrection, we find out that the Spirit proved that He is indeed everything that He claimed to be. He was sinless and death had no hold on Him. He indeed has the authority to forgive sin. He indeed has the authority and the power to give life to whomever He pleases. He indeed has the authority to make you a child of God. He is the Christ. He is the Son of God. And the Spirit vindicated Him against all of His accusers, Satan included. Because you remember the whole time he was here, every time Satan would come to him, he started in the, the wilderness when he was tempting him. He said, hey, if you really are the Son of God, did you catch that? You hear the accusation? The accusation from Satan is, you're not who you say you are. You can't do what you say you can do. But when God raised Jesus from the dead, that was a declaration that He was vindicated. Amen. That He was proved to be right. That He is all that He claimed to be. And that He has the power to do everything He said He would do. And I, some of you may not be getting this this morning. 
But if that don't change your life, let me tell you something. When I know that this man really does have the authority to forgive my sins, I'm following this guy. When I know that this guy has the power to raise the dead, that's a big, that's a big, deadness is a big problem for me. I don't know how y'all feel about deadness, but deadness is a pretty big problem. This man claimed he has the power to raise the dead. And then he proved it. I'm following this guy. This guy has the authority to make me a child of God, to be adopted as his brother and heir to all things in the kingdom. And then he proved it. I'm following this guy. The truth of Jesus being revealed in the flesh and vindicated by the Spirit is life-altering when you believe what He promised that He had the power and the authority to be able to do. So in the resurrection, the Spirit vindicated Him against all of His accusers. He is all that He says He is and He will do all that He said He will do. Listen to me. When you believe this Gospel and when you understand this truth, you walk in confidence. Guys, I know that Jesus is going to forgive my sins. I know He has the authority. And I know He's going to do it. Because He proved. He proved that not only will He die for me, but He lives for me. And He gives me life in Him. And so Jesus is vindicated and He has proved that He is not a liar. He is everything that He said He was. He is the Son of God in power. The second way that He was vindicated by the Spirit is that the Spirit declared Him to be without sin or any wrongdoing. Look with me at Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Um, I'm sorry, verse um, 23 and 24. Acts 2, 23 and 24. This is Peter's great sermon at Pentecost. I love this part of the sermon. But in Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 23, he says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. <laughs> I love that verse. See, we want to look at this and we think that the death of Jesus was just some side effect. That God didn't know that we were going to fall in sin and He didn't know, but that's just something He kind of put together as He went. No, look what it says next. This Jesus was delivered up. And He was delivered up according to the definite plan. What's a definite plan? To the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. And notice what it says next. You crucified and you killed Him by the hands of lawless men. He didn't deserve to die. He didn't do anything to die. Matter of fact, He had no sin in His life. The payment for sin is death, and yet He had to pay for something that He had never done. He had never committed. And so notice what He says next in verse 20. Um, Verse 24, and God raised him up, loosing the pains of death 
because it was not possible for him to be held. Now, I want you to think about what that's saying right there. The power of death is sin. Without sin, death has no place. Death came into being because it was the punishment and the payment for sin. And so the Bible tells us that the sting of death is sin. Death gets its power and its authority from God's law because it demands death anytime it's broken. But listen, if there is no sin, then death has no grounds to hold. You see what I'm saying? If there is no sin, then death has no grounds to hold. Satan wanted and hoped that this was not truly the Son of God, this is not truly God in the flesh, this is not who He said He was, and he was really hoping that death was going to be able to hold him. But on that third day, death had him as tight as he could get him. Death thought he had him. And then all of a sudden, death realized, I've got nothing to hold him with. His, his resurrection is the declaration by the Spirit of God that He is without sin. That He has absolutely no guilt, no sin. The pains of death, it is impossible, is what Peter said. It was impossible for it to hold Him. And so Jesus, He conquered because He had never sinned. He conquered sin in the flesh. He conquered death. And He conquered the grave. And He did this proving that He is the Son of God in power, without sin, without flaw. He, is, he has no wrongdoing in Him whatsoever. Now, why is this important? Because if this is not true, if Jesus has sin, I mean even one sin, I mean even if all Jesus ever did was he just told a little white lie. That's all he ever did. He had one little flaw to him. If that were true, then the righteous requirement of the law has not been fulfilled for us. You say, well, what do you mean, Pastor? Look with me at uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. Jesus here is um, uh, preaching His sermon on the mount, and He's going to tell His audience here, He says, you therefore must be what? Perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now this comes just after Jesus has corrected His listeners' misunderstanding of the law. He would come to them and He'd say, you know, you have always heard um, that um, you should not commit adultery. But I say to you that anybody that looks upon another human being with lust in their heart has committed adultery. In other words, Jesus has this entire sermon about the law and about how the standard is even so much higher than what you think it is. And the point being, when He gets to the end of it, is you therefore must be what? Perfect. Guys, listen to me. This is something that most people don't understand. And some of you have heard me say this before, but you need to get it. I don't care if it offends you. I don't care if you don't like it. This is the truth. You will not get into the presence of the Father except you be perfect. 
That's the truth of it. And I know all of you sitting there going, I'm in trouble. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. But you will not get into the presence of the Father until you have been made perfect. And you say, well, pastor, how's that going to happen? Well, two things have got to take place. The first thing is that your payment for your imperfection has to be paid. And then the second thing is that somebody in human flesh has to fulfill for humanity what God created human beings to be and to do. How does He do that? Well, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, the most beautiful Scripture in all the Bible that paints the Gospel for us to me, look at what He says. For our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin. There's your first problem fixed. The payment that you owe for your imperfection, well, He sent His Son to be sin. In what way? All of the sin of mankind that would put their faith and their trust in Jesus are placed on Him, on that cross, and God treated Him as if He committed each and every one of them. And then He says next, so that in Him we might become what? The righteousness of God. There's your next problem. He takes your imperfection and He puts it on Jesus. And He takes Jesus' perfection, His sinless life that God required of you, and He puts it on you. You become the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ, and Jesus becomes your sin on the cross in His foot. We owe everything to what He has done for us by living a perfect life. He absolutely had no sin. And it is vital that you and I understand and believe that because you must be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. And you cannot be perfect unless the Lord Jesus Christ gives it to you. That's the truth. See, so many people have an issue when I say that. I preach that so many times and somebody will come up to me afterwards and say, brother, you can't be telling people you got to be perfect. Listen, you better figure it out. Because that's the only way you're ever going to understand the Gospel is to understand the standard of the requirement of God's law that is demanded of you. And, and you say, well, yeah, but God's going to, God's going not really going to look for that. And God's not. Yes, He is. Yes, He is. And when you walk in there, the good news is, if your faith and your trust is in Jesus, He don't see you. He sees Jesus. But you better believe He sees perfection. Because if He didn't see perfection, you ain't worthy and you ain't coming in. That's the truth of it. And so, when He was vindicated... It was the declaration of the Holy Spirit that He is without any sin, without any wrongdoing whatsoever. Jesus has fulfilled all of God's law perfectly in every way. Jesus told the Pharisees, not a jot nor a tittle, not an iota 
is going to pass away until all be fulfilled. And when Jesus lived that perfect life in human flesh, He did for you and me what you and I could never do. And when Jesus died on that cross, He did for us in a single moment what would have took an eternity for you and I to have done on our own. And that is to satisfy the wrath of God on our sin. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 through 18, this is the passage that I think I just quoted for you, but He said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to what? To fulfill them. I've come to fulfill them. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22, this is what Peter said about it. He committed no sin and neither was deceit found in his mouth. Even though he was accused of being a blasphemer. Even though he was accused of being a liar. Even though he was accused of being a demon and operating under the power of Satan. Even though he was accused of not truly being the Son of God, but being a scam artist. In the resurrection, the Spirit declared to all who saw it, this man is everything he said he was. And he has the authority to do for you everything that he promised he would do. You know, accusation still remains one of the leading strategies of Satan. He still stands before God day and night accusing the brethren of not being holy enough, not being worthy enough, of being in filthy garments. I love in Zechariah chapter 3. If you'll turn over there with me for just a second. This will be my closing text. In Zechariah chapter 3, verse 3 through 5. Excuse me. I'll give him just a minute to see if they can pull it up for you. Zechariah chapter 3, verse 3 through 5. Look at what happens here. Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed in filthy garments. (laughs) I love that right there. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. Now, if you were to skip back with me to Zechariah chapter 3, look at verse... um, Start in verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? And so here's the point. Joshua had a responsibility to serve the Lord in the temple. He was the high priest at this time. Satan came and he stands before the Father and he says, He's not worthy to serve you. Look at him. He's got filthy garments on. Look at him. 
He can't make sacrifice to you. He can't, he, he can't be in your presence. He can't offer you anything. And you know what? God does not argue with him. He is in filthy garments. That is true. And there are so many times in my life, and I don't know how you've ever felt about it as a Christian, that you've heard the accusations that Satan says about you. He's not worthy. He don't deserve to serve you. He don't deserve to be even in the same room with other believers. And you know what? I look back at him and I say, you're right. But let me show you Paul's answer to all of it in Romans chapter 8. Paul's answer to all of it in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. Look at this right here. This is why Jesus' vindication is so important to us. Romans chapter 8, verse 31 through 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And that's what I say back. You say, well, how do you know that God is for you? He gave His life. He gave His only Son. And if He will give me His Son, if you'll give me your, your child, is there anything that you wouldn't give me? And he says here, if God is for us, who can be against us? And then go to verse 32. He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? That's, God. That's Paul's answer to the accusations. Go to verse 33. Keep going. I want to go all the way to the end of this. So, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. And so I'm like Joshua here. I look at Satan's accusations and I say, yeah, my garments, they're filthy. Yeah, I'm not worthy to be here. But He made me worthy. He did for me what I could not do. And He has taken His clothes that were clean and He has put them on me. And because of His vindication, all I can say is that what charge will you ever be able to bring against Him first and foremost? Is there any charge Satan will ever be able to bring against Jesus? None. And if Jesus says, I'm the one that has the power to forgive sins, I'm the one that has the power to make you a child of God, I'm the one that has the power to raise you from the dead, I'm the one that has the power to give you eternal life, and He proved it, is there any charge that this enemy will ever be able to throw at you that will ever be able to stick? No. And so who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. And more than that, who was raised? And who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Verse 35. So, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall a tribulation separate us? Shall a distress, a persecution, a famine, a nakedness, danger, a sword? As it is written, 
No, for their sake, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long and we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But verse 37, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. Through Him, points back at Jesus and what He's done for us, through Him who loved us. Verse 38, for I am sure. Guys, this is where confidence comes from. That Jesus is everything He said He is. And He will do everything He promised He will do. I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, verse 39, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all... Did He leave anything out? He said, I'm sure that nothing will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He is my vindication. Not because I'm without guilt. No, I'm full of guilt. But because of what He has done for me and what He has the authority to do and who He is and who He proved to be, His vindication by the Spirit is my justification. And because of that, that changes the way I follow Him. That changes the way I believe and the way I behave as I uphold the truth, this great mystery of godliness that He was manifested in the flesh and He was vindicated by the Spirit. If y'all would stand with me this morning because we have a time of invitation. You know, maybe, maybe this morning you're, you're somebody that... Um, You've just struggled with your lack of, of faith, your lack of assurance in what Christ has done for you and who He is. Maybe in the resurrection this morning, you finally are in awe and wonder of, of what that meant and who He is. I don't know what it is, but I know the Word of God always demands a response from your life. And I would pray this morning that whatever response is appropriate between you and Him, I pray that you would praise Him if you need to praise Him, I pray you need to ask forgiveness and repent of sin. Maybe this morning, the accusations Satan bring against you, you know they're true. And then your next response is, God, I repent. And I trust that You have the authority to forgive me. And I trust that You have the authority to give me new life and to let me walk in You. Whatever it is that God would have you to do this morning with this Word, I pray that you would do it before you leave.